0: Welcome to the No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy.
1: And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites
0: Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets.
1: As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its
0: core comes down to keen single name selection And we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites. And today we are discussing a topic near and dear to every credit analyst's heart, and that is defaults, default expectations, what's the outlook for the US default market in 2024. With me, I have Luba Petrova. She is Fitch Ratings, head of US Leverage Finance, and Kai Jilks, the Credit Sites head of Quantitative Research. Luba and Kai, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Winnie.
2: Thanks for having us, Winnie.
0: Now let's let's get right into it. Let's start with those high-level default expectations across the U.S. bond and leverage loan markets. And Kai, I'm going to start with you because you are on my Credit Sites home team. What is our Credit Sites forecast for U.S. high-yield bond defaults in 2024?
2: Winnie, we expect the U.S. high-yield issue-weighted default rate, and I say issue-weighted because there are obviously different ways of looking at it, and I think Fitch are using a slightly different forecast approach. So ours is issue-weighted, which is the same thing as saying equal-weighted, and our forecast is that the U.S. high-yield default rate will edge up to 3.5% by the end of 2024. So that's a 50 basis point increase from its current level of 3%. Now, a three and a half percent default rate equates to roughly 30 issuer defaults, which would be three more than we recorded, um, the 27 we recorded in 2023.
0: All right, so 3.5% doesn't sound too shabby to me. And, you know, I'm also kind of talking my own book here because I, I may have strong armed you into some of these default forecasts as we were walking through it. But when you were looking at the default forecast, what were some of the key considerations that you were keeping in mind?
2: Well, a couple of things really did play on our, our minds. One was the fact that defaults rose from a, a cyclical low back in 2022. I think it was sub 1%. And then they almost doubled from the beginning of uh, 2022 uh, to something like 3% at the end of 2023. So we saw quite a, a significant rise. I mean, it was from a very low base. Nonetheless, if you extrapolate from that, then that would mean the default rates would reach their historical average of around 5% sometime in early 2025. We don't think that's going to happen. So that was one concern. Another concern was the levels of distress that we saw in some sectors and the extent to which those might result in, you know, a sort of a, a, a slew of coercive debt exchanges. So I think those were two of the, the big things that were playing on my mind, at least as we headed into our default forecast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the big takeaways from 2022 into 2023 was how sometimes those signs of market distress are not as great of a leading indicator in the default cycle. And it seems like things are kind of changing minute by minute, especially 2024 off to a very strong start, high yield spreads tightening pretty considerably, in fact, already at our year end 2024 target, which means that I I have some work to do go back to the drawing board and to figure out where we're actually headed and markets back open for some of these more storied or stressed issuers having availability of liquidity in the Primary market. Lua, I'm going to turn to you. And how does the credit site's forecast for US high yield of 3.5% compare with what you guys are looking at on the Fitch rating side for
1: defaults? Kai and my team compare notes and setting aside differences in our methodologies. So, for starters, he derives a forecast based on issuer count, we do it based on amount of debt our views are aligned on terms of defaults for many of the same high-yield issuers. So similarly to CHI, we forecast an increase in the high-yield default rates along with the long-default rates. And this is on the back of the toll that the higher for longer interest rates are taking on highly levered issuers, and our expectation that corporate issuers won't be able to generate the requisite EBITDA growth to offset the impact of the increase in interest expense, especially in a year when economic growth acceleration is a headwind. Great. And
0: then I want to follow up on the broadly syndicated loan market because credit sites does not have kind of an official loan market default methodology yet. Maybe Kai, that's something we can talk about doing in the future. But Luba, I know on the Fitch rating side, you guys are very focused on the leveraged loan market. Can you talk a little bit about your expectation for loan defaults versus high yield bond defaults? Are they the same? Are they different? What's going on there?
1: Yeah, good question. There is a difference. Our default rate forecast for uh, bonds is a range of 5 to 5.5%. Five and, and we have the loan default forecast at 35 to 4%. So it's about a, a 1.5 percentage point lower. And I realize this appears counterintuitive because there is a lot more credit risk that has accumulated in the leveraged loan space. That's also the demographic that has really borne the brunt of the rate hikes. And the explanation is simple, and it lies with the fact that our forecast is far-weighted. And there are some really chunky bond issuers that we expect will experience some uh, form of default within the next 24 months. The examples that I would cite here are DISH, Bausch, and LUMEN, the latter of which is currently in process with a restructuring that we view as potentially resulting in a distressed debt exchange, which we count towards our default volume.
0: That is really interesting because when I talk to clients, the general view has been oh man, the loan market, it looks not great from a fundamental health. We had already seen pretty significant intentional releveraging with. Private equity really going to the loan market for LBOs and leveraging M and A transactions, and then when you add in the increased cost of capital, just looking at loan fundamentals relative to the high yield bond market, it's night and day different. With high yield bonds looking much better, but I guess this is one of the areas where having more fragmentation, so smaller deal sizes for a lot of those loan deals, and looking at on a par weighted basis rather than issuer weighted does kind of change the dynamic across loan and bond default expectations. So Kai, let's jump into talking about sectors a little bit. I know for a long time, energy was the dirty word in the high yield bond market with energy really representing a pretty significant share of defaults. Are we still worried about energy? What are the sectors where we are seeing the most potential for default candidates?
2: A Couple of years ago, I was, I was getting tired of, of constantly talking about energy as driving the default rate. That is no longer the case, for sure. Energy is really strengthened fundamentally. And what we're seeing now tends to be issues in the healthcare, sections of TMT, retail, a bit of basic industries. Um, And I have to say, I think it's very much a continuation of the themes we saw last year. And a lot of these issuers were flagged as potential defaults last year and and made it through. So I I don't expect 2024 to necessarily be a repeat of 2023, but I think distress ratios will continue, in my mind, to overstate the propensity of, of many of these issuers to default
0: that is really interesting and i think that from a client perspective having more widespread default candidates across different sectors has been both good and bad right we don't have to worry about just energy or one problem child sector really blowing up your portfolio performance and also it feels like a lot of our clients are playing this constant game of whack-a-mole like where do we have to look next for whatever the blow up is going to be and whenever i talk to clients about kind of looking for the the potential candidates for sectors that might be at risk, I like to refer back to, you know, who had the most issuance, especially who was issuing for some of the more intentional re-leveraging type opportunities. And I think that that's very clear with healthcare and telco now being kind of front and center. Those were two sectors that saw very heavy high yield issuance for an extended period of time, especially because healthcare was traditionally viewed as this, you know, very defensive sleep at night sector. And now even some of the hospitals like Community health have ended up seeing some stress on balance sheets and bigger challenges. So Luba, how do the sectors that Kai identified compared to what you are most concerned about in the high yield bond market and then also the loan market for the Fitch default forecast?
1: We are pretty much in line with, uh, with uh, what Kai just said, and I agree with Kai. Energy issuers have really um, have been able to deliver and have also exhibited balance sheet discipline, which is kind of keeping the default volumes in, in that space lower. Healthcare is the biggest contributor of default volume on our side for both loans and bonds. Um, This is a sector that really struggled with the delayed post-pandemic recovery. It was caught up with supply chain challenges. It was also meaningfully impacted by the labor shortage and wage inflation. And then you also have the fact that in the US, healthcare is heavily regulated by several different agencies. So adverse regulatory decisions can be highly consequential for issuers in the sector. And to illustrate this, the No Surprise Act was cited as a factor in the bankruptcies of two large uh, healthcare issuers, Caesar and Vision, and Air Methods. Technology is another sector with a high number of potential loan and bond defaulters. Uh, the overarching theme here is that these are issuers who uh, levered up uh, maybe to unsustainable levels during a much more favorable operating environment and also in a much more favorable monetary policy environment. And now that combined with top line deterioration is catching up with them and is resulting in liquidity squeezes. You mentioned telecom, that's another big driver for both loans and bonds. There are issuers in the telecom sector that have uh, very high levels of debt with business models that call for um, a lot of capex. And now they're feeling the squeeze of the uh, spike in the interest rates. And last but not least, retail is a meaningful driver of high yield defaults by issuer count. This is one of the five sectors for which Fitch has a negative outlook for 2024. And the factors that are weighing on issuers in retail are high debt levels, reduced consumer savings, and you know the overall impact of inflation. The overall impact of there's too much stuff in my house after
0: I bought all of the things when I was stuck at home in 2020, or is that, is that just me? <laughs>
1: Definitely true for uh, customers of at home group, for example.
0: Yes, for sure. So Kai, let's talk a little bit about the credit sites default methodologies, because you have a few different models that you rely on when you're working on your high yield bond default forecasts. And then you also have the opportunity to work from the bottom up with the analyst team. Can you walk us through your different models? How do you approach defaults? And are they these models signaling kind of a consistent forecast across them? Or do they differ?
2: Well, from a top-down perspective, we use a, a number of regression-based models and they are, are used to provide a projection of potential default rates using spreads. So we use high yield minus investment grade spreads, triple triple C minus double B spreads and index prices. So we look at the bottom quartile of index prices and that's a, a good leading indicator of default rates. Um, in addition to that, from a top-down perspective, we look at trends in distress ratios, also the percentage of distress issuers that ultimately default or the distressed default rate, if you like. And that helps us evaluate the likely trajectory of default rates. So we're triangulating among these different top-down models. And I would say until the last year or so, they have been reasonably consistent. And then inflation, rising rates... And things went not haywire, but there's certainly a, a big dispersion between different models. And so that means that we need to take a qualitative assessment and say, okay, which models do we believe more? You know, which ones do we need to haircut because there's a, there's an overly negative impact of inflation on rising rates. So that was a challenge for us. And that's just from the top down. When we look from the bottom up, we also have single name default models. Uh, our risk products uh, suite of models that we roll up across the index to give us an aggregate measure of index default risk as a whole. And that model has actually been less sensitive to some of those macro uh, external impacts than the top-down approach. So we actually put more weight on the bottom-up approach, particularly given the um, ex- expertise of our analysts who could go in and say, yes, you know, this name is, is a default candidate in my view, or no, you should remove that from the list because they have a good runway, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, it really ends up being a mixture of qualitative and quantitative analysis to get to our default forecast.
0: That's super helpful, Kai. And I always appreciate that mixture of qualitative and quantitative because it's interesting how you can kind of rely on the historic data and the trends and expect that to extrapolate forward. But like you mentioned, a lot of the models have broken down in their utility over the past few years because we've seen such extreme swings both in monetary policy and interest rates going very low and then inflation rearing its head and borrowing costs gapping higher. So Luba, how does the Fitch team approach default forecasts? I would imagine that you're very focused on the bottoms up given that the entire mandate of the Fitch ratings team is to look for defaults and and rate
1: these companies. That's exactly right. We take a bottoms-up approach to deriving both the loan and bone default forecasts. We start by categorizing issuers in the loan and bone universes based on the degree of their riskiness, and we place them on one of our market concern lists. We have three top market concern, tier two, and other at risk, and that depends on their proximity to default. And to make that assessment, we look at several factors, such as ratings, uh, secondary bid levels, proximity to maturities. And we also follow credible, credible news stories around the issue where, for example, um, hiring of a restructuring advisor might be a good indicator. The market concern lists, in turn, uh, form the basis of our default forecasting process, The three lists basically differ based on the degree of riskiness, and the issuers that are most likely to default within the next 24 months are placed on the top market concern list. Every issuer on this list is included in our default forecast for the next two years. Some, but not all of the issuers on tier two are included in the forecast because there is a degree of uncertainty that uh, the default may It would not take place within the next 24 months. And this level of granularity really allows us to identify secular and company-specific trends. We publish our default forecast and market concern lists in our monthly distress and default monitor report. And for loans, um, the issuer classification is also available via the CLO tracker, which is a product that offers a variety of data points on issuers held within portfolios of CLOs rated by Fitch.
0: That is a very robust approach, and I know that that kind of CLO portfolio and, and potential for defaults has been something that that people have been really concerned about, given some of the the rules around CLOs. While defaults, you know, the forecast and the actual percentage of defaults are important to investors, I think even more important can be the recovery side of the equation. And Luba, I'm going to direct this at you because we don't actually track recoveries at credit sites, but I know that your team has done a lot of work looking at recoveries. How should we be thinking about potential recoveries through this interest rate policy hiking cycle? Are we to expect higher or lower level than
1: historic uh, recoveries? And why? Let me start by clarifying that when we talk about recoveries at Fitch, we mean ultimate recoveries. So the recoveries resulting from the bankruptcy process in the U.S. We're not talking about market proxies such as 30-day past default or price upon emergence. The analysts in my team will go into the bankruptcy dockets, which in the U.S. are public, and will scrub information on enterprise valuations, emergence multiples, and recoveries for each class of debt holders. We also published this information in annual sector analysis called bankruptcy case studies. What we observed is that 1st lien recoveries in 2023 came out below historical averages. Now, the average weighted 1st lien recoveries were 53% for 2023. And I would say that while this number is low relative to historical average, it's not without a precedent. We saw similarly low recoveries in 2016 and also in 2020. Now, there are several factors that can drag the average down and drag the average down in 2023 representation of sectors in the sample matters. So if you have a large number of issuers or large issuers from sectors that have historically exhibited lower recoveries, such as retail and tech, for example, that's going to drag down the annual average as well. The presence of repeat filers is also impactful. We had a VIA last, last year, for example, that was a, a second bankruptcy filing for the company that had originally filed in 2017, had a chance to right-size their capital structure and typically when you see a second filing that indicates a broken business model. Where we are in the cycle matters as well. Obviously, weaker economic conditions tend to flush out the weakest issuers first. And last but not least, composition of the capital structure is co- very consequential for recoveries. Uh, our data suggests that first, lean, heavy capital structures tend to exhibit lower recoveries.
0: So another big factor recently or at least headline has been liability management transactions, creditor on creditor violence is another term that I'm hearing quite often, big focus for analysts and investors alike. Uh, Luba, how impactful are these liability management transactions
1: on recoveries? I don't think we're allowed to get through a leveraged finance podcast without invoking liability management transactions at least once. So I'm very happy that you asked this question. We analyze recoveries outcomes uh, through the bankruptcy process again for issuers that had executed liability management transactions prior to filing and also issuers who hadn't. And the difference was meaningful. It was 47% versus 57%. And this delta would have been twice as large if we had taken out the two lowest outliers from the second cohort or the cohort that hadn't executed liability management transactions. And these two outliers were Party City with only 9% of firstly in average recoveries and Avaya with only 20%. So as you can see on a portfolio, basis, liability management transactions can have a very meaningful impact. But it's also fair to note that the impact of liability management transactions on recoveries can vary from one situation to the next. They are one of many factors. In some cases, they can play a very prominent role. In Envision's case, for example, could Amcerc not being transferred out of the restricted group, there is no question that recoveries for the existing first lien lenders would have been higher. But we've also seen cases like Diamond Sports, where the issuer already had substantial amount of debt of about $8 billion. The additional $600 million that they added by the priming transaction was probably not as impactful for recoveries as, for example, the business challenges that the issuer was contending with so
0: now that we've mentioned liability management transactions we've checked one square on the leverage finance bingo box but another one is private credit and Luba every client meeting that I've had lately the financial press you know pretty much everyone involved in the world of fixed income is laser focused on private credit whether it is a bubble on the verge of bursting or actually a key source of liquidity for the world of leveraged finance still, kind of remains to be determined. But your team has a very helpful view into private credit as you actively track a private credit portfolio and have great information on defaults within this portfolio. Can you give us an overview of your private credit portfolio and then some of the recent default trends that you've observed?
1: Yeah, of course, uh, Fitch has a portfolio of some 300 plus private monitored ratings on middle market issuers, which were request, requested by asset managers. The increase in the base rates has taken a toll on the issuers in this segment. We saw deterioration in coverage ratios within the portfolio. They ended 2022 at about 2.2 times. This, the coverage ratio decreased to 1.6 times in 2023. And many issuers within the portfolio already had tick baked into their credit agreement and that helped them decrease their cash interest expense. The percentage of issuers rated C plus and below also rose from about a quarter of the portfolio in 2022 to uh, almost 30%. In 2023, that may foreshadow further defaults. Now, in terms of defaults, within our portfolio in 2023, we had about 14 from 10 unique issuers, and that's higher than 2022, but lower than what we saw in 2020 and 2021, when we had 21 defaults and 18 defaults respectively. And it's also worth mentioning that all of the defaults in 2023 took the form of distressed debt exchanges rather than the more severe outcome, which would be wind downs and bankruptcies. And often the default was a result of issuers asking to amend the credit agreement so that it would allow to convert the interest payments to PIC, which we consider a distressed debt exchange unless the big feature was already in the existing credit agreement. I will say that my colleague, Lyle Margolis, who heads the private debt platform within leveraged finance at Fitch, publishes some excellent research with his observation from the portfolio. We publish a middle market quarterly chart book with trends within the portfolio and uh, topical reports as well.
0: Yes, I find all of the private credit information that your team puts out, Luba, and then also our Leverage Finance Insights team has been tracking private credit, super helpful for me in thinking about the impact of private credit on the broader leverage finance markets. So, Luba, it sounds like so far private credit defaults and stress within that portfolio have been relatively subdued, you know, especially in in 2023. What do you think it would take to see a spike in private credit defaults and are you surprised that we haven't seen
1: more yet? We have to keep in mind that the underwriting standards within private debt are relatively more conservative and there is lower exposure to cyclicality because cyclical businesses tend, tend to be avoided by private lenders. And I think what's also beneficial when it comes to default levels and overall outcomes within private debt are the two hallmarks of private debt, which is sponsor support portfolio companies and the strong relationship with their lenders. Now, that has helped extend the runaway for many of the private debt issuers. We looked at about 500 middle market issuers for whom Fitch has done a private monitored rating. And we found that of the 37 issuers that experienced at least one default, almost 60% received support from the sponsor. And that was typically done in exchange for granting relief five covenant waivers, um, allowing picking or other amendments to the credit agreement that would provide the issuers with some more room to maneuver. But one thing to keep in mind is that. sponsors don't necessarily have unlimited resources or desire to throw good money after bad. And it will be challenging to have to spread support over a large chunk of sponsors' portfolio. So I think it will take very prolonged and much more widely spread um, adverse economic and interest rate environment to generate more defaults.
0: All right. So kind of sounding the all clear, at least a pretty constructive outlook for private credit. Although I think we all are wondering, you know, this liquidity, the cash on the sidelines that has been so supportive of a pretty robust market rally. At what point does that start to end or at least wind down a little bit more? Kai, I'm going to bring it back to you to wrap up because you mentioned earlier risk products as one of your basis for kind of figuring out single name defaults. And I know Kai, you have spent just an enormous amount of time focused on credit sites risk products over the past year. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what is risk products? How should clients be thinking about using it? It's utility and some of the recent changes that you guys have made.
2: Well, risk products in a nutshell is a suite of models that allow for screening uh, and monitoring of credit portfolios to look at whether there are names that require more attention, so a lot of our clients have alerts based on the trends and the levels of the outputs of our models. So our, our models produce two key things. There are a lot of derivative outputs that are useful, trend information, etc. But the two key outputs are a default probability over the next 12 months. And that default probability includes distressed debt exchanges, missed payments, Chapter 11, the usual suspects. But also the, the second is a credit quality score. And the credit quality score is designed to, to look more at medium-term risk over sort of a five-year uh, horizon. So those two metrics are very useful for monitoring portfolios from risk managers, through to asset managers that want to really just understand the, the the relative quality of different names, both from a avoiding downside risk, uh, rating migration, defaults, but also opportunities for necessarily perhaps adding more more uh, exposure to a name that is improving over the over the recent uh, few months. So the default risk prediction and credit quality assessment, those tools have been recently revamped and we've launched a new and improved version of the methodology that has been fully integrated into the credit sites platform. So we're very proud of this new platform that is fully integrated, has a lot of cool functionality, dashboards, the ability to load portfolios and, and get alerts on those portfolios. But not only that, we increased our coverage from 8,000 to over 30,000 companies. So the new platform is really something that I would urge people to contact their sales rep and, and get a demo.
0: Excellent, Kai. Well, with that, I think we are going to wrap it up. We've talked about defaults for about 30 minutes, which you know is generally all I can stomach because I like to think about the more positive things in the market, although the outlook doesn't seem all that bad considering where we have been and, and where we've come from with the broader economy rates, macroeconomic factors and monetary policy. Kai and Luba, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great discussion. I hope everyone enjoyed hearing about the outlook for defaults, recoveries, liability management, risk products, all of those things. If anyone has any follow-up questions for me, Kai, or Luba, you can find Kai and myself on the creditsites.com website using that Ask an Analyst function, and we'll make sure to include some contact information for Luba in our podcast synopsis. Thank you guys so much for joining me.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of a advice by credit
1: sites or its affiliates.